um, uh, climate uh, promises without restarting nuclear power. So no one's talking about it, but I think it's well worth looking at. And what, as, apart from Omicron and, and the, the opening up, what other themes do you think um, investors should be focusing on that, that, that are going to impact Japan next this year? Well, I think probably the uh, the digital transformation theme has probably gone too far, and um, and valuations are getting uh, stretched there. But I do think that um, tech is going to continue to be a uh, uh, an important theme for the uh, for the coming year. Um, uh, yeah, I think those are the um, the main areas for, uh, for looking at in the coming year. Okay, well, thank you very much, Nick. Look forward to talking with you more this year about uh, Japan. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo right now, the Nikkei 225, that broadly unrepresentative index, is up three quarters of a percent. Uh, in Australia, the SX200 is up over one percent. The Cosby in South Korea is flat. Uh, the Hang Seng set to add about 75 points at the open in just under an hour's time. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil trading at $78.97 a barrel. Gold routing up right now at $1,804 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for back chats with Janice Wong and Brian Wong just after the news. The weather forecast, mainly fine. Maximum temperature is going to be around 21 degrees during the day, becoming cloudy later. And the outlook is for one or two rain patches tomorrow, mainly cloudy, with sunny intervals in the following couple of days. The temperature is 18 degrees and the relative humidity at 73%. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shawoski with the half-hour news. No new cases have been found after a building in Taiwan was locked down overnight for testing. 660 residents of Tower 2 at Granville Garden were tested and the lockdown was lifted at 7 o'clock this morning. It was ordered after a resident tested preliminary positive for coronavirus. The 66-year-old woman died, dined last week at Moon Palace in Kaluntong, the site of a growing cluster of Omicron cases. If she's confirmed, she would be the sixth infection. Health officials also confirmed that the wife of a construction worker who ate at the restaurant a week ago was the fifth case. She was the sole local infection among yesterday's 29 cases. The operator of a community vaccination center says he's seen a surge in people coming in for jabs in the past few days. Dr. Samuel Kwok runs the Kunchung Community Vaccination Center, which offers Sinovac jabs. He says the government's plan to expand its vaccine mandate over more venues appears to be boosting vaccine uptake, even among the elderly. Dr. Kwok says despite studies showing the lower efficacy of Sinovac compared to the BioNTech jab, some people felt Sinovac had fewer adverse side effects and it could still offer protection. Sinovac, which is an inactivated vaccine, they elicit in the body not just the antibody protection level, it also elicits the T-cell immunity which is not measured in those studies. So I still think that Sinovac is effective, even though it's not having higher antibody level in protection against this coronavirus infection. Just minutes ago, a jury in the U.S. state of California has found entrepreneur Elizabeth Holmes guilty on four of 11 counts of defrauding investors in her startup, Theranos. She was acquitted on four counts, and the jury could not reach a decision on three counts. 
Prosecutors said Ms. Holmes swindled private investors between 2010 and 2015 by convincing them that Theranos' small machines could run a range of tests with a few drops of blood from a finger prick. She was also charged with misleading patients about the test's accuracy. The World Health Organization has warned that Omicron will not be the last COVID variant, and it's vital vaccines are distributed more fairly around the world. A senior epidemiologist with the WHO, Maria Van Kerkova, told the BBC she was enraged at the global failure to deliver vaccines at scale outside high-income countries. If you have larger numbers, 10 times the case numbers, even if there's half the severity, for example, for argument's sake, that's still going to translate to a lot of people needing hospitalizations. And our healthcare systems around the world are significantly overwhelmed. That combination of factors will lead to more people dying. She said it was still possible to meet the WHO target of 70% vaccination in every country by July this year. But manufacturers had to let poorer countries buy doses rather than just sell booster jabs to wealthier nations. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with Brian Wong and me, Janice Wong. On today's program, the new LegCo term and road safety. All 19 new elected lawmakers were successfully sworn in yesterday, with Chief Executive Carrie Lam personally administering the oaths for the first time to mark the start of Hong Kong's first Patriots-only LegCo. The first meeting is on Wednesday next week, and they'll hit the ground running as the CE will be unveiling plans to restructure several government bureaus. They'll also be expected to vet new national security legislation under Article 23 of the Basic Law sometime over the next six months. So are they ready for the challenge? What can we expect from the new look LegCo? After 9.15am, we'll talk about road safety after several horrific fatal accidents over the past weekend. We definitely want to know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or just give us a call on 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we're joined on the line by lawmaker Andrew Lamb from the Election Committee constituency and John John Burns, Emeritus Professor and Honorary Professor of Politics at the University of Hong Kong. We'll also be joined shortly by Executive Council Member Regina Ip, who is also the Chairwoman of the New People's Party. Good morning to the both of you and welcome to Backchat. Morning. Morning. Um, let's start with you, Mr. Lam. Um, you are the former head of the Antiquities Advisory Board and you're a very experienced town planner. What will be your priority in LegCo? Well, I think personal priorities certainly on the housing and land development for sure. But uh, I think uh, before we talk about the uh, different issues in relation to that two topics, which actually has very wide coverage on uh, many other issues, uh, I, I think the key thing is that we've got a newly elected uh, legislature uh, with people from all walks of life. And I think uh, no matter how experienced I am in my own field, uh, the key thing is to earn the trust uh, from the wider community uh, to start with. 
and uh, oh, on, on that actually, uh, Andrew, I was wondering, what do you think are the primary strategies that you would adopt in order to reach out to those who are less than enchanted with uh, what they see as perhaps not necessarily the most representative legislature? How can you win the people's trust back and also get them to see hope under the new system, which has been reformed to reflect meritocratic and also representatively the interests of the people at large? I think uh, no matter how hard I try is one thing. Of course, I will uh, start, uh, you know, uh, developing my uh, expanded network uh, at different levels uh, of the committee. Of course, uh, you know, would include uh, the, uh, the groups I, I know very well, but also you know those I don't really uh, know that much. Uh, but the key thing is that, uh, particularly for the, uh, the election committee uh, members, uh, you know, the 40 of us who've gone through that stage, uh, we, we have a, a kind of different background. We're, we're not from the functional constituency. We're not from geographical base. Um, people don't really kind of know us that much. And But when it comes back to the 90 of us, uh, I think let's face it. Uh, almost two-thirds of us uh, are new faces. I think the legislature as a whole has to kind of work together to find a new approach to build consensus. And at, at the end of the day, uh, I, I think our prime function is to make the government work rather than, you know, kind of work around ourselves. So uh, I think uh, we have to build uh, some, uh, you know, new culture. Uh, to enhance uh, governance and efficiency. And, of course, we will have to kind of uh, work with the government and uh, to make sure that uh, we have an effective means as quick as possible. That's one thing. The other thing is that when we talk about uh, the wider community, uh, at the end of the day, uh, we have to reach out uh, to each and every corner of the society and look at the uh, district council structure uh, is not working now and I, I think uh, we need to rebuild that structure in whatever form to make sure that uh, that uh, you know the uh, aspirations and and uh, needs of uh, and views of, of uh, each and every member of the community uh, can be channeled through that system and uh, allow us to kind of reflect that uh, to the government and uh, to deliver. All right. The new um, LegCo, uh, Mr. Lam, is made up of uh, more people from different backgrounds, apart from those who belong to different political parties. They're academics, lawyers, engineers, and teachers. There is diversity, but do you think this will actually make it harder to get things done since everyone may have their own views? No, I think uh, with the improved system, uh, we were just kind of drawing uh, people from uh, different backgrounds uh, in terms of uh, a bigger number. Uh, I don't really think that it changed the landscape completely. Uh, at the end of the day, think about the previous uh, functional constituency. We have 30, and uh, now we have 30. And, uh, but, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, adding a few more of us uh, through other channels. And I, I don't really think that will completely change the rule of the game. Uh, the key thing is not uh, about, uh, you know, how the legislative structure, the, the key thing is about that uh, there are more, I didn't really count, but there are more, certainly, uh, nonpartisan lawmakers uh, these days. 
So, uh, again, go back to the earlier uh, question is, uh, you know, we have to build a new culture, re- reaching consensus as quick as possible. Uh, I hope the, uh, the government, as much as ourselves, uh, realize that challenge. And uh, I don't really think that we could afford uh, too long a time to kind of showcase to the uh, general public that I think we can work something out. Professor Burns, what do you think? Will the new LegCo be more productive? Um, I, I believe it will if you measure performance in terms of efficiency, such as the number of bills passed per week or some sort of thing like that. But I think there are other measures of performance here that are more critical. One is how effective is this new Hong Kong government LegCo arrangement that uh, Mr. Lam was talking about. Are they actually able to solve public problems? And this depends not just on the analytical and operational capacity of government, but it depends on political capacity. Mr. Lamb mentioned trust. I couldn't agree more. Trust is very, very important here. And citizen satisfaction is a key measure for uh, measuring the performance of LegCo as well, and that depends on trust. Trust right now only about a fifth of the community actually trusts the government. And this is a huge trust deficit. Um, and how to rebuild that, I think, is absolutely key. One thing that hasn't been mentioned is the government needs to monitor, I mean, LegCo needs to monitor government. It needs to hold government to account. And when the public sees that this is being done, I think this is a way to rebuild trust. Mr. Lamb mentioned the gutting of the district councils and things like that. Yes, this has happened, and they may just be abolished. I don't know. We have no statement from the government about the extent to which it values public opinion. Maybe it doesn't value this at all. So we citizens, speaking from that perspective, are going to have to wait and see. Now, on the subject of rebuilding trust, it strikes me that there are two different aspects or prongs to this. One is to tackle the many ingrained long-term issues undergird Hong Kong's status quo today. But that will take a lot of time. Land, housing, these are not problems that can be easily ameliorated. And then on the other hand, there's also the perception about communicating effectively to win back the trust from the public. So here I want to bring in uh, Regina, who is one of the most veteran and experienced lawmakers. Regina, what do you think are the best means of really communicating and also engaging effectively with the public as part of this new uh, legislature and legco term? I think engaging the public um, could be a mere talk shop if the government cannot solve the real problems. Uh, the major problems are land and housing shortage, the runaway home prices, lack of upward mobility on the part of young people, lack of hope on the part of young people. These problems cannot be solved by one or two engagement exercises. You know, uh, as Professor Burns pointed out, you know. Um, the, the, the problem lies with the government's political capacity, you know. And the new LegCo, we've talked about, about how uh, we've been coordinating, in fact, within the new LegCo to work out a new system for communication and liaison and, and uh, 
uh, forging a consensus among the 90 members. But uh, the government-led correlations is important. If we are going to follow the executive-led model embedded in the basic law, the government needs to lead. You know, the government needs to convince all 19 of us that it has the capacity to lead. And uh, Mrs. Ip, um, last week, the chief executive, Carrie Lam, uh, she said the government will launch a consultation on the Article 23 legislation later this year. Uh, and this must be something you're looking forward to, right? Oh, uh, it's been outstanding for 24 years. It's a constitutional responsibility. The sooner we fulfill it, the better. And um, if, but do you if think... my version had been passed, you know, there would have been greater deterrent uh, to discourage people from getting to the streets and the trampling on the Chinese national flag and all did all those crazy things. But, but do you think the consultation should be uh, carried out before the current administration's uh, term ends in June, or should it be a well, job for the new administration? Pledge. That's her pledge. Whether the government could start doing that before the end of her current term, I don't know. It's for, not for me to say, but there ought to be a consultation. And the, the the remaining gaps in our law ought to be filled and updated. So a common strand that underpinned, I think, uh, many of your responses just then, um, Regina, uh, Professor Burns, and also Andrew, is the importance of consensus formulation. But with the heterogeneity and diversity of voices that we now see in Legco, this is indubitably going to be you know, no mean task for the government. Do you have any recommendations or advice for the executive? If they want to ensure consensus, how can they build that and ensure that there's a coalescence around an efficient government proposal? In other words, what do you want to see from the executive to help you folks uh, really rally around the executive in the upcoming term or so? Well, um, in any society, it's hard to achieve complete consensus on any issues. Um, the makeup of our electoral means that we are supposed to reflect different opinions, you know. If the government puts an important bill to us, you know, say, uh, overhauling existing planning procedures, we will look at it very carefully and we'll tell the government what we think. You know. And, uh, you know, uh, during the last term, there was disagreement within LegCo about whether to ban heat not burn cigarettes. Uh, there was no consensus between us. But the government finally put its foot down and managed to persuade those still resisting complete ban to give, give in. So the relationship between uh, our legislature and the government is like the one in any place, you know, between Congress and uh, the White House. You know, there's always um, give and takes. You know, there's always uh, cut and thrust and give and takes. Right, Mrs. I think it will continue to work that way. Uh, all right, Mrs. Zipper, uh, let's go back uh, a bit to yesterday's swearing-in ceremony. It, it was a bit different from the past. I mean, you took the oath in front of the national emblem and the uh, Hong Kong SAR flag. Did it feel different from, from previous uh, oath-taking? Well, I think it's a really high time we should do it um, because of political problems in the past. You know, our, quote, opposition had always been, you know, uh, privileged the two systems at the expense of the country. In fact, the opposition that Western nations set such high store to 
they were opposing. The main target of their of the opposition was China. They opposed to anything to do with China. Uh, forgetting that one country, two systems is based on China's agreement to allow the two systems to exist. So it's about time, in a way, to put the Hong Kong legislature in the right place, that we are a legislature of the Hong Kong SAR of the PRC. All right, so I have a message on our Facebook page. It says it's from TC. He says, I noticed that the um, Hong Kong SAR emblem was not present in the chamber, although I understand that's the new legal requirement, but why couldn't both be um, uh, shown at the same time? And then he, he also said, uh, so there were members who didn't read the oath of office correctly. Why aren't they disqualified according to the 2016 NPCSC interpretation? Uh, uh, let me answer these yes, questions. Yes, thank you. Um, the national emblem had to be there because under the public officers' oath-taking and assumption of office uh, ordinance, miscellaneous amendments, uh, ordinance 2021 passed last term, during the oath-taking exercise, the national flags had to be there, the national emblem had to be there, the chief executive had to be there. You know, we revamped the rules, you know. Um in future, the uh, legal president will have to discuss with his legal advisors and government experts as to how to put back the regional emblem, or how they should be uh, put on the wall. You know, these are a lot of legal technical issues to discuss. You know, and regarding the old ticket, the two legislators who left out a couple of words. They were spotted by the Legco Secretary General and asked to redo it on the spot. So they qualified. As for our colleague, Hakan Chan, Gary Chan, uh, who failed to raise his right hand, this requirement is not in the law. So he qualified. Thank you. And just picking up on something you mentioned, uh, Regina, just then, concerning the relationship between us and our own country, China. Now, it strikes me that over the past decades or so, a core issue of contention is how we ought to relate with the mainland and our very own country. And as you said, you know, one country, two systems is a vital procedure and mechanism for our continued uh, vitality. The question here, though, is beyond one country, two systems, how can Hong Kong contribute towards the rest of China and also truly play a role as a constructive player in China's developments and advancements? And here I want to rope in uh, not just Regina, but also Andrew and Professor Burns on your thoughts on the subject. How can we be helpful and useful towards our own country in a way that's dynamically beneficiary to everyone involved, including Hong Kongers and the entire country's 1.4 billion denizens at large? Uh, Andrew, perhaps? In contributing to the uh, economic development and world development of our country in the past at least 40 years by maintaining its uniqueness, uh, I, I think we should try not to kind of be an order or just an order uh, to go Chinese city, uh, no matter what the GDP number is, but to maintain you know, the uh, kind of strength of uh, the so-called two-system without, you know, uh, forgetting the importance of one country. That's one thing. Uh, that said, I, I think we have uh, a lot of edges uh, in, uh, I would say, assisting and also enhancing uh, the overall competitiveness of the region as a whole 
uh, and um, to reach out to the world market. Um, and one thing I, I think we have to kind of think beyond our own uh, little territory, uh, and at least to start with uh, the uh, entire Bay Area region with almost 10 times population, uh, that big market can actually uh, accommodate a new set of standards uh, and, you know, uh, kind of opportunities uh, to groom and nurture uh, new businesses and uh, kind of new opportunities uh, and uh, allowed us as a whole um, to uh, kind of innovate and uh, then to market that out uh, to not just uh, the entire uh, nation, but also uh, the Belt and Road system and all many other places. Uh, without that uh, region, I think Hong Kong is too small a market for uh, a lot of things, including what we talk about, uh, you know, quite often these days, the creative industry, uh, IT, and that kind of things, which we actually try uh, almost several decades ago, but I don't really think that is uh, too successful uh, case to mention. So on, on that, actually, Andrew, you said you don't think Hong Kong should be just another Chinese city, but Hong Kong as a part of China uniquely benefits from the pluralism and diversity of political forces, culture, and institutional experimentation, and the openness of borders. These are the virtues and assets that have kept Hong Kong a part of China, but also uniquely different from the rest of China in that sense. Um, so I just want to throw this question back to you, uh, Professor Burns. How likely do you see these virtues and strengths as carrying on, and how can we ensure that you know the, these assets of Hong Kong are not diminished by upheaval and turmoil um, at large? So this is what we're waiting to see, isn't it? I agree with uh, Mr. Lamb that making Hong Kong a success, one country, two systems of success, is the way to go. I would, he has emphasized the one country and the integration aspects. I think that's very true. But I would also integrate the um, two systems part of it. Um, and for this, I think we've, we have talked about the things that are necessary to make it successful, and rebuilding trust is a very, very important thing. Um, monitoring the government, I think, is a very important thing. We have more autonomy in Hong Kong than a mainland city right now, and we have to use it effectively to make Hong Kong successful. Successful contributing to G GBA, but successful in its own right. I think these, this is... Uh, the absolute key. Whether this is going to happen or not, it's too early to tell. All right, uh, we will have to take a break for the uh, news summary very soon. But I have an email here for Regina, uh, Mrs. Ip. Um, you s it's uh, from John, and he says, you say that the uh, shortage of land supply is a key problem that uh, the Hong Kong government must tackle. In your recent LegCo campaign, you said that redeveloping the Kwai Chung Port was one of your objectives. What are you doing about this? And uh, what is the stance of the government and port owners, Hutchison, Wharf Costco to your proposal. And uh, that email is from John. Mrs. Ip? Well, I will continue. I raised an oral question about this in Lechical. Mrs. Lamb's reply was somewhat hesitant that it is the right strategy, but she does not did not seem to have any given any detailed thought to it. 
I will continue to pursue this job subject. But you see, it's an executive-led model. It's still, it's still up to government to make the right decision at the right time. But I think it should be done. Uh, of the nine terminals, those on Kwai, Kwai, Kwai Chong should be relocated first. Uh, the bigger, more modern ones are on Ching Yi. I think I will continue to press government to give us a detailed strategy. All right. Just going back uh, briefly to uh, uh, what we talked about uh, on Article 23 legislation, Mrs. If, uh, with the national security law already in place, do you think the Article 23 legislation should should be different from the one um, in 2003? Um, Definitely. 2003, the version was uh, very mild and outdated. Uh, Although the national security law filled the gaps about uh, subversion, secession, collusion with foreign forces, etc. Um, the a lot of the offense on our books, treason um, and uh, theft of protection of official secrets are very outdated. Uh, so is the definition of spying. You know? So I think we need to up- update a lot of existing legislation and also take into account new evolving threats. All right. And what's your, what's your view? Do you have, what's your view on that, Mr. Lam, just briefly? work on the uh, political structure and or political infrastructure and uh, institutional infrastructure as quick as possible. And uh, is that, to me, is simply a development matter because actually if we don't lay the foundation as stable as possible, uh, then we could move on. And I think uh, Article 23 is one of them. All right. Uh, well, we're going to have to take a short break for the news summary, uh, Mr. Lam. Um, Mrs. Ibb, thanks again for joining us on the program. That's Executive Council Member Regina Ibb, who is also the chairwoman of the New People's Party. Also, many thanks to uh, lawmaker Andrew Lam from the Election Committee constituency. And uh, Professor Burns will continue our discussion right after the news when we'll be joined by roundtable lawmaker Michael Ten and Alice Mack from the Federation of Trade Unions. And uh, just a brief look at the uh, weather right now. It's uh, mainly fine and the top temperature will be around 21 degrees and uh, currently is 18 degrees and uh, the relative humidity is uh, 71 percent. Prison. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Tuesday morning with Brian Wong and me, Janice Wong. We're talking about the new LegCo term. If you have any questions or comments on today's topic, feel free to contact us. Our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Our telephone number is 233-88266. And our Facebook page is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. We're now joined on the line by Roundtable lawmaker Michael Tian and Alice Mack from the Federation of Trade Unions. Good morning to uh, both of you and uh, thanks for joining us on back chat. Morning. So, so, Mr. Tian, what will be your priority in the new LegCo term? <coughs> okay, short term, medium term. I'm not government. <coughs> I'm here to monitor government, look at what they present to LegCo, and then see whether there's any suggestion or improvement I can make, and whether they listen to my advice and decide at the end whether I uh, vote to support or not to support. That's my job. I'm not government. I'm not here to run Hong Kong. Let's get it straight. But what kind of bills will you be uh, raising this this coming year? Okay. There are a couple of things that I think is a big problem. First of all, you know, with this subdivided unit, they pass a law 
to control the rental income. I had commented, and I did not vote to support. I commented that it's a bit uh, useless because it did not control the level, okay, the beginning level of each, uh, the rental of each tenancy. So they said they're going to take uh, some time to look into that and then come back with a revision to that bill. In the meantime, there are reports that the landlords are uh, increasing rent left and right to a point where many tenants are now forced to look for other places because they are using this uh, <clears throat> uh, gray period, uh, so-called the uh, empty window period, to increase rent, okay? Because they predict that the government eventually will put a cap on the rental level vis-a-vis uh, -vis the surrounding uh, market rent. Okay, so, so, so that's the first thing I want to do is to get them to come back and revise the bill, amend the bill as quickly as possible. Secondly, uh, there is um, this uh, child protection agency funded by an NGO supported by government, uh, which is now involving staff uh, uh, molesting uh, the children that they're supposed to protect. So I want to find out exactly where government's responsibility lie, uh, what is the, uh, the accountability of the management of these uh, <clears throat> child protection uh, institution, and what is government's role in uh, uh, supervising these institutions because they fund them. So that's the other thing I want to look at. Okay, the third thing obviously is much more immediate, which is what's government doing with uh, the air crew allowing uh, cargo crew not to go through hotel quarantine, but home quarantine, and then having uh, people being able to walk out and take off their masks and dine in a public restaurant, uh, spreading the uh, Omicron now to a level where experts say there may be a fifth wave. So what is the uh, measure that they enforce under a home quarantine, uh, which we are supposed to have strengthened a year ago with the wristband and a global tracking device to make sure none of these people can leave their home? Okay, so that's a serious issue now confronting Hong Kong because government just sounded the alarm bell yesterday saying that with the fifth wave coming, there may not be enough quarantine center and quarantine hotels to house all the people that needs to be quarantined and they may have to resort back to home quarantine. Now, if they do resort back to home quarantine and they have no ability to enforce a, a real home quarantine uh, with uh, enough uh, uh, equipment and devices, then what are we going to do? Thank, thank you, Michael. And I think the three problems you pointed are all very salient, and they also reflect that there are certain underlying, perhaps, structures within the government that require redress in terms of how governance is currently handled, but also given that these are such significant problems featuring the people, uh, one must wonder you know, how goes the consultative process when it comes to deliberating and also figuring out what policies to implement. So here I want to bring in Alice 
Alice, when it comes to your priorities and also improving governance and holding the government accountable, what would be your most salient, I guess, um, primary foci in the first year or two of your term? Um, I think I, I share some of concerns of uh, Michael. Uh, how to control the pandemic, especially when there is probably a rebound, uh, is very important because the many people, they, they really look forward to the reopen of the border with the mainland. So um, uh, I think the first thing that when we, uh, in our new term, is to how to uh, control the pandemic so that we can reopen the border uh, as soon as possible. Uh, the uh, the second thing is, of course, the um, uh, the people living in subdivided flats. How to help them and improve their quality of life, and uh, how to enhance uh, housing and land supply. Uh, this is the, the most imminent um, issue that we have to con- uh, address uh, in our new term, uh, especially when this is a very root, deep-rooted problem in Hong Kong. Um, it it, uh, it, it uh, uh, involves many uh, procedures, uh, legal procedures, and very complicated procedures in uh, processing uh, land supply. So uh, I was looking to all the, the relevant ordinances and see how we can streamline the, uh, the legal procedures. Thank you. And I, I, I guess I'm asking the million dollar question in the room here, which is, um, Alice, Michael, when do you think the border is indeed reopening? Because I think many of our audience are dying to find out. Well, supposedly, uh, Carrie Lam has succeeded in persuading Beijing to open the big gate. All right. And Guangdong is willing to open the middle gate. It's now up to Samjan to open the small gate. And Samjang was going to open the small gate around uh, Christmas time until the loophole currently detected at the airport uh, with the Hong Kong government's inability to enforce hotel quarantine on cargo crew and the home quarantine being totally uh, uh, ineffective uh, now giving Samjun a very big excuse to refuse to open the little gate despite green light from Beijing. So I can say that opening of the border was originally totally in our hands. And now it is slipping away because of our own government's inability to really uh, seal off the airport to make it uh, a leak-proof border with the rest of the world uh, by simply succumbing to cargo crew member. So there's no one to blame except ourselves. And to answer your question, I have no idea. It's all in government's hands. How quickly they plug this loophole and whether this thing will spread out, if everything is controlled, there's no fifth wave, and all the air crew are now subject to hotel quarantine, and there's no more leakage found at the airport, maybe before Chinese New Year. Well, I think um, uh, the first thing we have to uh, um, make sure that 
all the secretaries, they have they share the same uh, goal and, and objective, that is to reopen the border with the mainland as soon as possible. So when they uh, introduce any measures, they have to look into uh, their bureau and see what they can do. Uh, just like um, well, Michael said, uh, there's a loophole in the airport uh, about the air crew. And how to manage them is totally in the hands of the uh, 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 transport bureau. Uh, but you know, very, very disappointed uh, to see that uh, all the secretaries, they only look in, they only concern their, uh, the development of the industry, and they do not concern about how we can uh, control the pandemic in, in Hong Kong and how we can reopen the border with the mainland. So um, if they, they have this, this mission, this objective, uh, they will try every uh, measures to, uh, to control the pandemic. So to put and to put all the loopholes uh, 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 within their bureau and also the, the industries. So um, um, so I think the, the chief executive really need to um, to to give pressure to uh, all the uh, all the secretaries and ask them to pack all the loopholes. Otherwise, when we cannot control the pandemic, how can we convince the mainland government, uh, especially uh, those uh, Sunshan government, uh, the Sunshan provincial government, how can they uh, trust our uh, pandemic control measures and to reopen the border with us? All right. I know, I know that both of you have to rush off very soon. But yes. Just uh, one final question. Uh, the, the chief executive election is coming up next. Uh, we don't know if Carrie Lam will run for a second term just yet, but uh, um, Mr. Tian and Ms. Mack, would you like to see Carrie Lam lead Hong Kong for, for a few more years? Well, this is a very difficult question. Uh, I think many people, Hong Kong people uh, have some grievances uh, over the years. Uh, but uh, uh, I think uh, with the new um, uh, the new electoral system and uh, uh, the 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 central government support, uh, I hope that uh, when uh, we can really um, actualize the Patriots administering Hong Kong and with all those new measures and new system, uh, we can uh, elect a new or a, part, a suitable uh, chief executive to run Hong Kong. Uh, and the chief secretary, the suitable chief secretary running Hong Kong should uh, understand people's concern, people's needs, and people's and hear people's voice. Mr. Tian, my answer is very simple. Everything in life is about choices. I don't know what choice I have. Full stop. All right. Uh, all right. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, that's uh, Roundtable Lawmaker Michael Tian and Alice Mack from the Federation of Trade Unions. Thank you for joining us. Um, it's now um, 15 minutes past nine and it's... Oh, and it's time to turn to our final topic today, and that's about road safety after several horrific fatal accidents over the past weekend. Um, to, to discuss this or to comment uh, on this, we're now joined in the studio by James Ockenden, the founder and editor of Transit Jam and a producer of radio show Wham Bam Tram. Great to have you here with us. Um, one of the accidents I'm talking about uh, involved a red minibus running over a pedestrian in Long Kok uh, last Friday. Another accident involved a private car that killed two people in San Kong on New Year's Eve. Um, James, it just seems like more traffic accidents occur during the holidays or festive seasons. Uh, do you think so? 
I, it, it may seem that way. It's not often the case. We do, we do seem to get them bunching up these uh, traffic. Uh, I should say as well, we shouldn't really call them accidents because they are preventable and they are predictable. And we should really start calling them crashes, you know, because an accident is something we could avoid. So, you know, these, these fatalities and these, these horrible tragedies, the man dragged 16 kilometres under a bus, uh, the two pedestrians killed, literally just standing outside 7-Eleven, just going home from work. Uh, these are these are things which Hong Kong should be addressing. And it was very sad to me that on New Year's Day, the chief secretary's blog didn't mention these at all. He just talked about the celebrations for the 25th uh, anniversary of the handover. And I think in other countries, there would be at least some comment from leadership or government on what just happened on this you know, tragic New Year's Eve. Do you think these uh, crashes you're talking about, they're um, related to uh, people's uh, driving attitude? Uh, perhaps attitudes, but fundamentally it's down to speed and it's down to road design and it's down to road layout because cars and, and minibuses drive much too fast. There's not enough space for pedestrians. <clears throat> if we look at Kowloon East, where uh, Energizing Kowloon East actually did a big study on that very street, Tai Yau Street, where the BMW ploughed into uh, five pedestrians, in fact, they had done a study there, but they, they've been talking about privatising walking. It's absolutely insane. I just watched that movie, Don't Look Up. I don't know if you've seen that. Yes, I've and seen that. to me, that wasn't about climate change. That was about road safety. That was about scientists who are saying that speed is too dangerous. Our roads are not designed for cars that travel at these speeds today. And nobody's listening. The government is not listening. What they do is walkability studies, okay, and they pay consultants millions of dollars to look at under very fixed conditions how we should make the streets safer but all they do is put crossings in and things like that which don't make the streets safer we need to change the road design so that cars simply cannot travel at 75 kph down that pedestrian you know road thank you very much i wanted to ask you about essentially the minibus speeding issue which strikes me that there's a, an incentive mechanism or a, a misalignment here where you know fundamentally minibus drivers are paid in accordance with a very specific set of criteria where in the status quo that do not include the safety and also the extent to which they break traffic offenses or violate traffic laws and instead it's more to do with the number of trips they make so would you suggest some sort of regulation and transformation to uh, how many bus drivers are paid and how the entire system operates well, is it in time for an overhaul yes absolutely a hundred percent it's time for an overhaul of the whole industry we know there are many triad connections for example to the red minibus industry that's very interesting and something we need to explore what you just talked about is very interesting because in fact the minibus is if you sit on one it's like the roller coaster you know it surges forward and then breaks now i'm on my bicycle i know i go 20 kilometers an hour and i'm seeing the same minibus at every traffic light so they're not getting there any faster they really are not um, so the speed they're doing is ridiculous same with cars cars have such acceleration these days when I learned to drive, I think the, the car would go 0 to 60 in about 15 seconds, and now they can do it in two seconds. So this surging forward and then braking hard is extremely dangerous. And the, the other thing I'd say, the minibuses have those speeds uh, um, displayed speed in the minibus, but that's not linked to anything. There's very easy ways now to link that data and to actually capture that data and use it to perhaps penalise those who exceed it, but also to reward those who drive safely. So, so you, you believe there, there should be a, um, some kind of regulation for these red minibuses. Um, what kind of suggestions do you have? I mean, should they be replaced by green ones? 
I don't think so. I think the red minibus model is actually very good because it is a sort of it does open up for this on demand. In fact, the operator of the red minibus, which killed the uh, the, the elderly man on New Year's Eve, I've interviewed them in July, I think, 2020, because they were a leader really in the red minibus industry, and they had new buses and they had this on-demand technology. They wanted to be the sort of Uber of minibuses, so you could book your seat uh, through an app, or you could WhatsApp, or or just call the driver. It was very good and therefore you could guarantee your seat and it was very popular with the elderly it was very popular with the community so that minibus firm actually was something of a leader I don't think we can say there's a link between how they're regulated um, and this you know this fatal crash is regulation therefore the answer or perhaps is more structured decentralization and devolution with something akin to an uber like p2p platform might that be the way out in terms of ensuring quality control so you don't need regulations you just need solid data storage and recording system where people can track performances and rate each other yeah i think that's very important i think that's very good but honestly before that i think we need to redesign our roads and it doesn't require a huge effort it just requires the government i mean the government was talking about privatizing walking it's absolutely insane it just completely devolved its responsibilities to pedestrian safety and said okay we'll give malls and businesses uh, more shops and more floor area if they put in a footbridge and a, and a lift and it was completely negating any it's the government's responsibility to keep pedestrians safe and putting in a few crossings isn't going to do it tai yao street i was there i was on the scene on new year's eve and it was horrendous it was really heartbreaking and that road is wide ish and straight and you can drive at a horrendous speed down that road there's no curves there's nothing to actually slow you down and it's very interesting that that street was the subject of a walkability study as was staunton street in soho where a woman was killed what just two three weeks ago and she again was just walking with her friends and was hit by a runaway car so both those streets walkability consultants have studied at great expense and great time both those streets and pedestrians are being killed so we've got to say why what work are they actually doing and perhaps i know those in the walkability community wouldn't blame the consultants because they're being given bad briefs by transport department but we've got to look at this we can't keep doing studies which go nowhere and which don't protect anyone if you were to redesign the roads, um, how would you redesign them or, or I guess, uh shape them in a way that's more walkable and conducive towards pedestrian interests? Well, I would, bring in, I would bring in experts who understand safe streets is not about signs, it's not about pedestrian crossings. It's about the, the new road in Kaitak. I was talking with Julian Kwong, who is you know, the UN road safety advisor. Uh, he, he's Leonardo DiCaprio, by the way, in that movie, Don't Look Up. You know, nobody's listening to him. Um, so he's looking at Kaitak. The roads there, which have been built recently, are just straight tunnels with railings. So the cars are going to speed down there you need curved roads we've done some transit jam has done some speed uh, camera work our wambam tram youth reporter amelia was out with a speed gun so we looked at bonham road we see the average speed uh, the, sorry the maximum speed 58 kilometers per hour on that on the bends on that street it's much too fast we looked at cornwall street maximum speed 101 kph much too fast for that street they're too it's too easy to go fast and of course if you're going fast and you hit a pedestrian which happens you're much more likely to kill them 
And uh, you're talking about uh, road designs or redesigning of roads. Um, I mean, apart from the ones you just mentioned about Taiyao Street, uh, what other roads are, are, are in need of this redesigning? Uh, I, think, I think, honestly, many urban roads, the government looks at speeding as a highway problem, but really it's the urban roads. So Cornwall Street, I've just moved here to Kowloon Tong and I'm on Cornwall Street. And, you know, we see Teslas and Porsches just bombing along there so fast, they haven't got time to react if a pedestrian cuts across the road, which they do because the crossings are far apart, then they haven't got time to react. They haven't got time to react if the traffic light changes. So they decide, okay, I'm going to go for it. And these are very dangerous things. So I would say almost all urban roads need a speed limit rethink and they need a design rethink. And many of these drivers are probably uh, using their phones as well uh, in the car? This is a problem. This is uh, one of the major causes of crashes is distraction. So speed and distraction. And the government says driving too close is another cause. But I think that's related to speed and distraction. Right. And have you been uh, following this up with uh, with maybe officials or have you tried to yes, meet Yes, I'm following up. Well, the Staunton Street crash, I'm still following up because Transport Department deleted the study which had talked about pedestrianising Staunton Street. And then they claimed they had deleted it before that crash and before my questions. Well, in fact, they had not. I've got internet archives to show that there's something very fishy going on there. I'm not getting any reaction from Energising Kowloon East yet, so I'm expecting a reaction from them soon. But I want to know why that study, which presumably cost a lot of money and which keeps... That was done by ACOM and we have no record of that contract being awarded or what was the scope. I want to know what that study has actually achieved. It seems that the archival system and also the evidencing system when it comes to just having some degree of transparency and accessibility, it is in need of some reform, to oh, say the least. Yes, we need, as the public and journalists, we need to know who's got what contract. The Transport Department can't just delete these things from record. I think that's outrageous. No other city in the world would do that if they want to be a proper transparent government. So I'm going to ask a slightly sort of curveballish question, which is, you know, the new territories, North Development and Northern Metropolis is one of the most sort of important priorities on top of the government's agenda right now. So when it comes to road planning and also development there, would you have any overarching advice, James, for the government in, in terms of just layout and also structuring of roads? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really not an expert. So but I, I would say they need to get away from this vehicles first mentality for their and for Lantau, because we talked about Lantau tomorrow and they said at first maybe it could be car free but the only way to get to Lantau tomorrow for example and the same presumably New Territories North is by car so then within that area you're going to have a car first and a truck first mentality and if they had built a bike lane on the bridge going to Lantau tomorrow for example then there's a possibility for it to be more open same with New Territories North I mean from my house to get to go to the cycle track at Chartin I would have to you know get a car or a van there's a great tunnel there there's the Beacon Hill tunnel which was closed and is now a gas pipeline that could be a cycle path and then connecting the cycle the city with bicycles so the government needs to think about connecting cleaner transport for its zero carbon goals as well as road safety. I'm just thinking about your, your suggestion earlier about uh, the need to redesign roads. Would that be a lot of work? I mean, you have to like do, I mean, lots of reconstructing. I guess it's a. I, I, I'm not. I don't really know if it's a lot of work. I wouldn't want to say it's not a lot of work, but it doesn't seem like fundamentally it's not like drastically reshaping the world it's simply putting in traffic calming measures slightly shaping the street so there's a curve you know putting in widening the pedestrian path at certain points so cars can't just go straight it doesn't seem 
to me as a layman that that's particularly onerous given what the government can do when it wants to it can build a bridge to, to Macau and Zhuhai you know and, and so I don't think these things which would save lives would definitely save lives uh, should be just neglected because they're too hard and we definitely shouldn't be privatizing this stuff to to mall and developer owners I suppose it is indeed the road not taken in that sense. Uh, yeah, yes. but, but there is a further question, which is to say that when it comes to sustainability and pedestrianisation, uh, this also surely feeds very nicely into tourism and reviving and rejuvenating local economy as well. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts on, say, walkability and some of the, the headline flagship projects the government is mounting in terms of district tourism, like Island, uh, Island South, yeah, uh, well, let's look at Mongkok. You know, I was there last night because Mongkok is it was a, a huge tourist place. Everybody would go to the ladies' market. That's it, along with you know Star Ferry and the Peak. Then the ladies' market is one thing. You can't walk around there now. They've put put the new footbridge in finally uh, after what twenty five years, but they've closed the road pedestrian crossing. So if you're walking down Nathan Road and you want to explore, you've suddenly got to go up and down. It's quite a mess. So in terms of tourism, you've got to keep things simple. The locals presumably know that footbridge network very well and I'm quite new to the area I'm learning it I'm getting to grips with it but as a tourist you'd be standing there with your map just completely bamboozled would this therefore be I, I suppose uh, some case of extending this sort of tourism centered reforms to island south and Aberdeen as well where yeah. you know they're doing a lot of the reconstruction work right now to rejuvenate the yeah. region yeah, it would be great to see. Uh, I think you can walk around Aberdeen reasonably well, but you've got to, you've still got um, that massive highway to cross. It's quite off-putting. So it's, it makes the, the decent area very distinct from the, the urban area. And I think you've got to sort of kind of link those two better. All right, uh, James, uh, we'll have to leave it there for now. Um, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, James Ockenden, the uh, founder and editor of Transit Jam and producer of radio show Wham Bam Tram. Also, many thanks to you for commenting through email and our Facebook page. Now, uh, the weather forecast, um, mainly fine with highs of around 21 degrees, winds moderate to fresh easterlies. And the outlook, cloudy with one or two rain patches tomorrow, sunny intervals in the next uh, later this week. And uh, it's right now it's a uh, 19 degrees relative humidity 69 percent the smart id card replacement exercise is for me and for you if you hold the old former smart id card and were born in 1980 to 1982 you must replace your id card from november 19th 2021 to january 18th 2022 you may bring two family members or friends aged 65 or above and two persons with disabilities to replace id cards together Let's build a caring and inclusive society. Remember to book ahead. It's uh, 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. The operator of a community vaccination center says he's seen a surge in people coming in for jabs in the past few days. Dr. Samuel Kwok runs the Kunchung Community Vaccination Center, which offers Sinovac jabs. He says the government's plan to make vaccines mandatory at more venues appears to be boosting vaccine uptake, even among elderly people. A first-time legislator says she wants to create a new culture in LegCo of constructively monitoring the government. Wendy Hong, head of research at New World Development, is one of 40 lawmakers chosen by the election committee. She said she wanted to focus on resolving Hong Kong's economic problems. And officials say they found no new cases after testing 660 residents in an overnight lockdown at a building in Taiwan. 
People were allowed to leave Tower 2 of Granville Garden at 7 this morning. Those are the news headlines. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Hi. Good morning. And good morning to you, too. How are you doing? Excellent. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good night. Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to your show. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. to you and welcome to the 11th day of Christmas and World Braille Day here on Morning Brew. We're going to return to both of those topics a little later. But first, I must report to you that Jared Watt's having a well-earned holiday, so he'll be back with us next week with all the news and stuff from Down Under. 11 plus today, we're off to the latest addition to our weekly destination list, Wellington, New Zealand, and that is where Dr. Merrin Pierce is located these days. Today, he's going to talk about community spaces that are more friendly to humans and nature, like rooftop plantings and stuff, furry roofs, Kiwi-style. Join him on Facebook Live. After 12, biz futurist Morris Misalowski will talk about a study on music being good for your mental health, perhaps not from the aforementioned Pipers, and on World Braille Day, the latest advances in voice-to-text technology. In the meantime, it's 21 Pilots and Saturday here on Radio 3. Slow. 